Most of you know these horrible things are beginning to happen that Mr. Armstrong predicted for so many years. Specific things, as I've said. You know, the Berlin Wall did come down long after he predicted that. The Eastern European nations did break away. He was the only one who said that. The sea gates are being taken away. And now it looks like the United States of Europe, uh, or the EU, I should call it, as it's called, European Union, is coming apart. They're talking about the demise of the euro because of this financial crisis. And obviously there's going to have to be some kind of restructuring of that whole system. That might be, it probably will be, with God's guidance overall, the beginning of a restructuring that would eventually bring about the ten kings God predicted in the book of Revelation. There will be ten kings, not necessarily ten nations. There might be ten leaders with groups of nations under each one of them. So there could be 20 nations, but with only 10 major leaders. And that's what God indicated. And God's going to bring that about. He always brings those things about. I've been inspired, brethren, really, and, and very encouraged just to see that the things that I heard that old man talk about when I first came to college back in the autumn of 1949... Coming up on 61 years ago, he was saying a lot of these things to see how those things have come about. I came back from a baptizing tour in 1951. I called him that old man, and uh, he was only about 59 years old then, and he was 57 when I came to college. And one of the men we baptized, he said, tell the old gentleman hello. And so I told Mr. Armstrong that in front of others, and he laughed. He said, oh, I'm an old gentleman already. Well, he was only 59. So anyway, he didn't want to be old at any age, and he kept right on going. So he did set us a fine example in that way. By the way, I couldn't help thinking as we were singing uh, uh, the, the uh, 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 no, it was First Corinthians 13 about loving and that whole thing about what love is, you know, the love chapter and the song that Wyatt Armstrong composed, we take it for granted. But Mr. Armstrong had a great deal of musical ability himself, and he could play quite a number of pieces quite well, frankly, on the piano, even though he didn't practice very much. But his brother did have an innate sense of, uh, of a melody, and he wrote some very beautiful melodies, as you know, and set God's psalms to them. They're not all perfect. Some of them are not the best for congregational singing, but the most of them are. And that's really beautiful about love is this and love is that and just all set to, to, to a melody that Mr. Armstrong's brother wrote for us. I knew Dwight and, and his wife Karen very, very well. In fact, they just lived three or four doors down from us at one point. He was a very nice man, never was a preacher. He'd had a handicap, spinal meningitis as a child that kind of slowed him up. But he did have a great love of music and a great sense of melody. Anyway, we can be grateful that God is guiding all these things for good and that uh, this work can go ahead and preach specific things that the world does not answer. When the Eastern European nations began to break away and the Berlin Wall came down, Billy Graham in no way understood that or talked about it ahead of time. And uh, Kim LaHaye did not talk about it at all. And all these other Jerry Falwells and all the rest of the prophetic preachers, they didn't understand. Only one man understood, Herbert W. Armstrong, because, of course, he wasn't that much smarter than there, never claimed to be, but he had God's Spirit. A good understanding had they that keep the commandments. And that's what he did, and God gave him that understanding. 
So we're living in a very exciting time as we see the dollar go down and now we're seeing the euro go down and they're really shaken by that over in Britain and Europe and so on. These things are happening and we are the true church to continue doing the work that Christ began himself and continue doing through the apostles and I hope we can really understand that. Yet, brethren, many of you and not just you in this room. Some of you have been confused too, but I'm sure we have many brethren around the world who have been confused, and we have hundreds, not a few, but many hundreds of new people who've come into God's church the last few years, and of course they're just beginning to fully understand what this is all about. But many of you older brethren sometimes make comments as though you think of the worldly churches are really Christian, but they're a little weak, or they have this or that, and I think often we need to go back to our foundations and say, why are we the church of God? How are we really different? Who is a true Christian and why? And understand that. Because when worldwide began to come apart and the two young men began to be smart aleks and tried to get Mr. Dukats to change everything, which they did, why, I was amazed. Thousands of people that I had preached to at the feasts and on trips all over the country, because I did do it over and over when I was director of the ministry for 12 years, they just fell right away. I couldn't believe it. They didn't really get it. Mr. Armstrong used to look at the headquarters church and said, I don't think you brethren get it. So I think most of you do get it, but some of you don't. And I'm going to help the rest of you solidify this in your mind. And those of you who don't get it, you try to get it this time. So you really understand this is an important thing. I don't want you to fall away. You know, as I've said, something could happen to me. I'm, I'll be 80 years old in about eight, five weeks, and I've had a stroke or three strokes, I think. But whether I'm here or not, you'd better hang on to the truth. There is a church of God on this earth today, and you need to be where that is for your eternal good. Let's start, if you would, with uh, some quotes here. A lot of people assume that sincere Protestants are just about as Christian as we are, and they're just a little weak or something. And I could read all kinds of things out of many church history books, but this is just a very basic book on church history. It's one that is uh, used or has been used in Sunday schools and elsewhere by a mainstream Protestant writer, Jesse Lyman Hurlbut. And he says on page 41 of the story of the Christian church is the name of the book, and he's a mainstream Protestant writer. Look it up. Not some oddball. We named the last generation of the first century from 68 to 100 A.D. the Age of Shadows, partly because of the gloom of persecution, but because it is the period of history we know the least about. No longer do we have the book of Acts, and we have even Paul's other friends drop out of the record later. I'm summarizing here. For 50 years after Paul's life, a curtain hangs over the church through which we strive vainly to look. And when at last it rises about 120 A.D. with the writings of the earliest church fathers, I should say so-called church fathers, they weren't in the true church, we find a church in many aspects very different. Very different. Well, how could it be very different from what Christ taught and practiced? Very different from what Peter and James and John and Paul taught and practiced. If it was very different, it was not Christian. Does that make sense? I hope it does. If it was very different, how could it be Christian? If you have something very different from the early Christianity. And yet he admits that's what happened. 
And yet these Protestant churches, brethren, most of them in their writings, and I've quoted that, some of you have heard this same quote before because I've used it many times, but they themselves call the Catholic Church their mother church. They say Catholic Church is the mother. They know that that's where they came from. They came out of that system, and when you understand it, that system came out of Babylon. And so no wonder the church became very different in many aspects from the church in the days of Peter and Paul. And you have to understand that whole thing. I'd like to read a lot. I won't read too much here, just a tiny bit more of this. He said, as long as the church was mainly Jewish, of course, they try to blame that just on the Jewish element, but it was under the Gentile leaders for years, too, if you look into it. The Hebrew Sabbath was kept. What's the Hebrew Sabbath? Is that a mystery? <laughs> I think all of us know what that means. It's the Sabbath we're keeping right now. Frankly, for one or two hundred years after Christ died, the Hebrew Sabbath was kept. They knew that was the Sabbath. They gradually changed it. Was it changed because God spoke from the top of Mount Sinai and said, change my holy Sabbath day to Sunday? No. All the historians acknowledge it was done by these black-robed Catholic monks and priests and bishops over a period of time as they maneuvered around to find some way to bring in more of the pagans into the church. And they felt they could get more people to come into their organization, which was a human organization by that time, if they let them keep a lot of their same practices. So they were all worshiping the ancient Sol Dia, the day of the sun, and by letting them keep right on having Sunday and Christmas or Easter, the day of Astarte, the day of the early spring uh, worship of Easter, as it was literally pronounced, spelled Ishtar, but pronounced Easter, they let them keep all those pagan practices, and that made it easier for them to join so-called Christianity. But was it Christianity? It was not. He says a little later, the services of worship increased in splendor, but were less spiritual and hearty. Well, less spiritual, I should say. They got completely away from the Bible. Of course, it was less spiritual than those of former times. Notice the forms and ceremonies of paganism crept into the worship. Some of the old heathen feasts. He hates to say which ones, but all the church histories that go in detail admit Christmas was brought in from the pagans. Easter was brought in from the pagans. Uh, they gradually crept into worship. Some of the old heathen feasts became church festivals. So now the churches observe Christmas and Easter with change in name of worship. About 405 A.D., uh, images, you know, these statues they have in all the Catholic churches of the Virgin Mary and St. Joseph and St. Josephine and all these monks and, and uh, nuns and, and so-called uh, uh, saints began to creep in and began to appear in the churches at first as memorials, then in succession revered, adored, and worshipped. And the adoration of the Virgin Mary was substituted for the worship of Venus and Adana. So they began to worship the Virgin Mary and call it that rather than admitting they're just in the old worship of the goddess, which the Gentile religious mostly had a goddess, if you look in ancient paganism. I know John Hill and I were on a trip in uh, Egypt and in the uh, first over in uh, Greece and Turkey back in 1963. And as we came to one, of, I think it was the uh, mosque of Santa Sophia, but anyway, one of these big uh, uh, 
uh, mosques and uh, or churches it was uh, in uh, Istanbul. Why the guide was a young kind of a with it guy. He was kind of uh, smirky, and you know he'd studied and he he didn't take religion too seriously, which is good because he was willing to tell us more of the truth. He was a smart young man, and he says he says well he says this is this is the statue of the Virgin, and uh, so on. I, okay, I, and I ask him, I'm kind of pushy when I want. You mean the Virgin Mary? Yeah. I said, well, is this a statue then of Mary? He says, well, you know, really, it's a statue of of Diana. Oh, then I bored in again. I mean, this statue used to represent Diana. He said, oh, yeah. He said, I saw it brought here. Well, where was it brought from? Well, it was brought from Ephesus. They brought it over here on a truck from Ephesus. The same hunk of rock that used to be called Diana is brought over here. And now it's called the Virgin Mary, the same hunk of rock. They brought the whole thing, when you understand that, that's symbolic of what they did, and they call it Christianity. It is not Christianity. And you really have to understand that more profoundly than perhaps some of you do. And all our church needs to understand it, and all of God's people. So we have to understand, literally, that God mean, says what He means, brethren, and He means what He says back here in Revelation. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And verse 9, describing a coming battle, which regardless of Gerald Fleury's proclamation, has not yet happened. It has not happened. It will happen later. It says, uh, and war broke out in heaven. When this war breaks out, you're going to know about it. I mean, big things are going to happen way beyond what is happening now. Demonism and weird perversions and so on. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, and they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old. This is Revelation 12, verse 9. That dragon's cast out, called the devil and Satan. That's who it is. Who what? Who deceives the whole world. Well, I think a lot of even sincere people in the church of God don't really get that. They have nice Protestant neighbors or they have nice Catholic neighbors. And as I was growing up, I had both of them. We had a couple of families nearby who were Roman Catholic. And Cecilia Breckel was a pretty girl my age. And then her older sister was, I think, three or four years older. And she was Nancy Breckel. And uh, they owned uh, Breckel's uh, lumber yard. They were reasonably successful selling lumber and things like that. But at any rate, a nice Catholic family. My mother made friends of her just as a neighbor. And the girls would come and play. And Cecilia was over there with me and my friends. At this time, I was just about five or six years old, and I hadn't started growing. But Nancy came. She was about ten years old, and she got big and a lot bigger than me. But I wasn't going to let any girl frighten me. But she came over, and my dad had just given me some boxing gloves. And I was out there sparring around with some boys, and Cecilia was just watching. And I was, you know, pretty good because my dad had given me a fast bag and taught me what to do. And she says, well, I'll box you. And, uh, oh, well, here's a Catholic girl. So I boxed her, and she had a great big... She went, whoop! And she knocked me almost out. I fell down and saw stars. So my first bout was being almost knocked out by a girl. That was terrible. Very bad start. <laughs> a Catholic girl. But uh, anyway, they were a nice family. And uh, so they're not all bad. They just, uh, they, they're deceived. They're part of this world. That's what you have to think. Some of you have been Protestants as I was, and you think, well, we were better than Catholics. No, you weren't. 
The Catholics are just as deceived as you were. They're just deceived in a different way. The Catholics may have more pure paganism, and you have more of a mixture of paganism, but it's still paganism. So, you know, what are you going to say? Anyway, I know Dr. Benjamin Ray was from Louisiana, and he was one of my favorite peoples, and Mr. O'Gwen became one of my favorite people later from Louisiana. But Dr. Ray was from, I think, a town called Ruston, and uh, I recommended him to be the dean of the college at Bricketwood, and he was over the Spanish department for many years. But anyway, we used to have the north-south stuff going on way back in the 50s. Most people got over that over the last uh, 50 years. But, you know, the people from the south would be sensitive, and the kids from the north would persecute them about their southern accent and one thing and the other. And so Dr. Ray would tell all the kids, he'd say, look, he said, we're all in Babylon, and we need to realize that. So think about it, students. Which part of Babylon are you proud to be from? <laughs> it's all Babylon, and you've got to get that straight. Which part of Babylon are you proud to be from, you see? And well, it's all Babylon. We have to understand God meant it. Satan the devil who deceives the whole world. It is all deceived except a tiny little group which he described, which is the only exception the true church of God, which keeps God's commandments and, and has Christ living within them. And they're the only exception, frankly. The rest of the world is deceived. Some are deceived into Catholicism. Some are deceived into Protestantism or the Orthodox Church or into uh, various uh, cults or Buddhism or Taoism or Hinduism or whatever. They're deceived in various ways or just in agnosticism. They're still deceived. They don't know. They don't understand. God has not opened their minds yet. They're not unusually evil. They're just normal. Normal, carnal human beings whom God has not called yet. But they are not converted. They are not Christian. They don't get it. And we need to realize they don't really get it and not suppose that they are partially Christian and they were all the same. No, we're not all the same in that way, whatever. Turn to Revelation 17 now, if you would. And here, I'll skim some of this because you're familiar with it. But in verse 1, it describes the seven angels say, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So here is a great whore, as the King James describes her, and with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and they've made the inhabitants of the earth drunk. They are spiritually drunk with the wine of the wrath of this fallen woman's fornication. It goes ahead to describe it obviously as a false church and people made, made drunk by all this false teaching. They can't see straight like a drunk man. And this woman was sitting on a scarlet beast arrayed in purple and scarlet, gold and silver, having a, in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication because she gets into worldly politics and war which God's church is commanded not to do. And on her forehead a name was written, verse 5, mystery, it's a mysterious system. They babble some of their rituals in, in uh, Latin or other languages. They have all kinds of mysterious rituals. Mystery, Babylon the Great. God calls her Babylon the Great. The mother, she is a mother church. She has daughter churches who have come out of her in protest. But they are daughters. The mother of harlots. Doesn't say her daughters are any better. They're not any more converted than she is. She is a mother. The great whore is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. All during the dark ages, she persecuted and persecuted God's true church and the Jews and others who did not go along with her. And they were tortured to death, burned alive, all kinds of things by this great woman, this great false church for hundreds of years. And so she, he marveled with great amazement. And then it goes on describing how this woman sits on this coming military industrial complex that is going to arise in Europe and is beginning to arise right now. And it says in verse 18, The woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, when John wrote that, the, it was already beginning to happen. Rome became that great city through the Catholic Church and the influence Rome exerted to actually make and unmake kings all over Europe. Continue, verse 18, or chapter 18. After these things, an angel came down. He cried mightily, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, as God brings down that whole system and has become a habitation of demons. Here we read in day after day, almost every day, in either the Charlotte Observer, our major newspaper, or the Wall Street Journal, which I also get, or the Economist magazine, or Time magazine, or all kinds of emails that people send me, stuff off the Internet from all over the world. Here are some more Catholic priests and even Catholic bishops admitting that they have molested little boys. And some of them have been molested, you know, young women too. It's a system that breeds that. God says, uh, talks about a false religion that forbids to marry and so on. Well, that's one of their great sins. He calls that a doctrine of demons. If you look it up, I think that's in 1 Timothy 4, a doctrine of demons. And this is a system that has that doctrine. Many doctrines have come from demons, which is horrible. Instead of saying that God ordained marriage, God ordained sex, frankly, made us male and female in a right way for a right purpose, they try to make you feel guilty or ill about that, and you, you get all perverted in the way you think about it. You either should be a nun or a monk, or if you use sex, then you're, you, you feel guilty. Many people in the Catholic world, like you're secondary, you'd be better to be a, a monk or a nun or something, and it's a wrong concept that God hates. God's first command to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And they say, oh, no, it's better to be like the Virgin Mary. No, it isn't. You can do the other, but that is not better than having a, a family and marriage. The habitation of demons, a prison for every foul spirit. And when you understand all the things that that church has done all through the Dark Ages, if you read books on it, there have been whole books written about it. As you know, it's horrible. For all the nations have been made drunk at the wine with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That means all the nations, not just the Western nations in the Roman Empire. You look at what the religion they used to have in China. You look at the religions in, in uh, India and the various practices and concepts of heaven and concepts of fasting and punishing the body. You trace a lot of those things and even the symbols they use. They have uh, Christmas-like uh, colored balls and stuff like that that go right back to Babylon just as surely as the Catholic Church does. It's just taken different forms in different nations. It's all come from Babylon more than most of us realize. I, there have been whole books on that. One is called The Golden Bough, if you're a student, called The Golden, B-O-U-G-H, uh, or Christian and Pagan Creeds by Edward Carpenter, The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser and uh, other books, uh, many of them along that line. But anyway, 
uh, it's it's a, a foul system. All nations are drunk of this fornication, this false doctrine. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her. Come out of that system. Don't suppose that you can kind of mix with it and they have a lot of good and this and that. No, they don't. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. I've had a friend that, uh, you know, a person I know very well that went to attend these meetings by this young man uh, down here south that had, had this church. His father became an adulterer and was put out of his church for a while and then came back with the son as a very popular kind of youth minister, has great big services. But what does he say when you actually go there? He just has what uh, this Dr. David Chadwick over here says, has this great big uh, church up here uh, in Charlotte. They're not they're not preaching communism or something, but just a human spirit and think positive thoughts and everything will work out well and love the Lord. And my daughter over in England was telling me this uh, member came in over there who is a new member with us and said, well, I used to belong to a happy, clappy church. She used the term happy, clappy. I thought that's good. Oh, ha, ha, ha. they clap and they sing and they clap. Praise the Lord. And, you know, we could be like that. Just sing and clap and be happy. But we would not have time to tell you the truth if we did that. And those people don't understand why they're here. They don't understand the purpose of life. They don't understand God's commandments. They don't understand the prophecies of who we are and who the other nations are and what is beginning to happen right now. They don't understand any of that. They just go to church to have fun. Some of the Pentecostal church go to fun and some have come out of that. Admitted they used to have a wonderful time. They go to Pentecostal meetings on Friday night or Saturday night and holler and, oh, they get really happy there. They could get excited just like you would at a basketball game or a football game. They get their kicks that way, but they don't understand the truth. They are not called by God. They don't get it. God has not opened their minds. So you have to understand the difference. And all of us, brethren, and you new people coming, you have to understand the difference. There is a difference between God's true church and paganism. People will say they are nice people and sincere. Yes, my neighbors, the Breckles, were nice people and sincere. I'm sure from everything I heard, my mother got well acquainted with Mrs. Breckle, and she was very nice and sincere. Other Catholics are like that, millions of them, and they're not any worse than Protestants. And many of our Protestant friends, I, most of my relatives are Protestants. Do I hate them? No, I love them. I, I love them. They help me. They're nice people. But they didn't understand anything about true Christianity, in a sense, the ultimate part of it. They have little bits and pieces, but they never understood the basics of it at all because God did not open their minds. Many of these Catholics and Protestants do good works. So they must be Christian. Oh, they're doing good works, and they're nice. Well, Dr. Herman Hay, many of you heard of him, was the first male graduate of Ambassador College. And out of courtesy, we let Betty Bates graduate first, and she was the first female graduate. But Dr. Hay was the first male graduate, and Carl the dean of the ministry, because he happened to be there first. And Mr. John Halford was one of our leading pastor-ranked ministers who used to go over to the Orient a whole lot and all over and had a lot of warmth and charisma and so on. But anyway, they have both told me a number of times how wonderful the Thai Buddhist, the Zen Buddhist monks in Thailand are. And you go over there and these monks in Thailand that are Buddhist 
And many of the people, oh, how are you? And they bow and they, they're sweet and they're kind. And you said, you cannot meet more kind and gentle people than that. They're so nice. But if they do get into internecine wars with each other, then these same monks or these nice Buddhists whip out knives and literally cut each other. and The blood is spurting all over the place. But when everything's okay, they can be so nice, it just blows your mind how sweet they are. And we don't come in and, and, and bow to each other and all, and, you know, the way they do. So we don't seem as nice, I guess. But we don't whip out long knives if we have a disagreement. <laughs> and we, in the, in the Charlotte church, don't declare war on the, on the Atlanta church and have a war and kill each other. So you have to understand people seem nice. They, that does not make them Christian. They're not, not, they're nice in outward form, but that does not make people Christian. Do they do good works? Yes. The Buddhist monks and other monks and various Mother Teresa, the Catholic nun, do they do good works? Of course they do. They do nice things for others, but they don't understand the ultimate purpose of human existence. They can't give you that because they don't know that. It's not that we're better. I'm not one bit better than those people. It's just that God opened my mind and He did not open their minds. And it's up to God to choose whom He wishes to call. So please understand that. But they do... Uh, nice things and that's fine but they are not really Christian because they are not conquered by God they have not fully surrendered to the God of creation the true God through Jesus Christ as their Savior and given their life to Christ for Christ to live His obedient life in them through the Holy Spirit and Christ we find in Hebrews 13 verse 9 is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ will live that same life in you and me that he did live 1900 years ago, keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping God's holy days, and giving and helping and serving along the line that the Bible describes, not some other way. You say, well, none of you do it perfectly. No, that's why God tells us grow in grace and in knowledge. So I do not do it perfectly. But I, how many people have I killed in the last few years? You know what I mean? How many times have I done this or that? Well, no, none of it. But I have had vanity, jealousy, lust and greed and selfishness and various things that are human nature still. And when I get upset or tired or something, well, I'll slam the door and kick the cat or whatever. We don't have a cat. I'm kidding. But you know what I mean? For you animal lovers, we don't have a cat. All right. Anyway, you know what I mean? I have human nature but I don't do those awful things and I'm trying to overcome what's left of my human nature and I hope all of you are too. But these people do not understand. They have not been brought to that place to really fear the God of creation. The Sabbath points to the true God. You're to rest on the seventh day because in six days God created the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day He completed His work by resting by keeping that day, and that day is a sign of God, the true God, the Creator, and of God's people. And then when you read Revelation, I mean not Revelation, I mean Exodus chapter 13. If you don't familiar read, get this in your notes. Exodus 13 also describes the days of unleavened bread as a sign. You see, the holy days are also part of God's sign. The weekly and annual Sabbaths are all part of God's sign. To show you who the true God is. Because the holy days picture the plan of God. 
So you have to understand that the churches that don't do that, you say, well, the the Seventh-day Adventists, they keep the Sabbath. Well, sort of, they water it down a lot. If you talk to ex-Adventists, they'll tell you that. And many Adventist churches have Christmas trees right in their lobby nowadays and all kinds of things. They didn't used to, but they're getting further away as each generation goes by. But they don't keep the holy days. Only a few of them do. And But uh, they don't, God, again, God has not called them in that way yet. They don't understand God's plan. They don't know who we are as a nation. They don't know the meaning of prophecy and so on. So we have to realize God has the church of God called the church of God 12 times in the New Testament. The church of God at Corinth. The church of God. The church of God. That is the name of the church. And we keep God's commandments, His Sabbaths, His holy days, and we're designated in that way as the true church of God. So they are not Christian because they are not really conquered by God. In Galatians 2.20, I always have to bring this in, I guess, but you'll get used to it. The Apostle Paul said, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You don't live just by faith in the Son of God. It is in the genitive. It is in the possessive form there. And you could check that out. There are only three places where that form is used, and one of them is Galatians 2.20, Galatians 2.16, and back in, in uh, Revelation uh, 14 verse 12 where it says uh, this is the patience of the saints here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ so it's the faith of Christ not just in Christ so you've got to have his faith in you but anyway uh, many people have partial truth but it's not the whole truth and so they don't really understand uh, Mr. Armstrong used to say, if you're in space, a space engineer and you line up the space rocket and you just get it off, you know, a half a degree or something, if you go out several million miles, you might be millions of miles off from your target. You're just a little bit off, but you're off. You're off. You're going to miss the mark. So you have to understand that concept. They are not Christian and uh, if we thought they were Christian, how come the so-called Christian people in Europe for hundreds of years have had wars? You go read the story of the 30-year wars. And France and Germany and all the major nations in Europe were fighting and fighting back and forth and killing one another. Protestants were killing Protestants and Catholics were killing and butchering Catholics. The Catholic priests on one side would bless and wave their censors and give the blessing and blah 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 and then they'd send them up the hill and, and it'd blow the other guy's brains out their fellow Catholics would come up to the ridge and they'd kill each other all members of the same church as I said what if we would declare a war on the church in Atlanta or the church in uh, in New York or somewhere well that would be ridiculous we, we, we wouldn't dream of that but that's what they did for hundreds of years in Europe in America, we've had the same thing. The biggest thing would be the uh, American Civil War. Here you had Protestants in the North shooting and killing Protestants in the South and Catholics in the North killing and shooting Protestants in the South and back and forth, all in the same church, all supposedly Christian. Bang, you're dead. So it's crazy. They're, they don't understand. They were not called by God or they would not do those things ever, ever, ever. 
Anyway, you have to understand what God has in mind in these things. So now let's uh, go back to Genesis chapter 2 and get to a basic understanding here that you've heard of, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to have this be brought into your thinking at this point. In Genesis chapter 2, brethren, God describes uh, how he made man and put him into the garden. Genesis 2, verse 7, The eternal God formed man of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, as the King James says, the new King James says, living being, uh, because soul does not mean some immortal something. It, the literal word is nephesh. It means a living creature, a living being. So you don't have a soul. You are a soul. That's what you are. You're a living being. You do have a spirit, a spirit essence with your human mind, and then God's spirit can be joined with that spirit, but it's not a soul and the pagan concept that they have at all. The eternal God planted a garden, verse 8, eastward. There he put man, and out of the ground, ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 9, now the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and, get this, the tree of what? The tree of pure evil? No. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does that sound bad? Very bad, because it's deceptive. If I want to deceive you, and really deceive you real good, then if I come here to you, and I want to palm off a $100 bill, I don't want anyone to knock me in the head, but I'm getting ready for my trip, and I've got some extra money here, so I carry, I don't normally carry $100 bill. But anyway, I have a $100 bill, and, and, and you say, well, boy, that's good. You're giving me a $100 bill. It looks genuine. Do you think it's genuine? Well, as far as I know it is. I got it from Jerry, so we hope it's genuine. But anyway, it's a, it's a $100 bill. But what if it was uh, pink and polka dot and, and sort of orange and stuff? Oh, that's not a $100 bill. It's very obviously not a $100 bill. But this bill looks genuine because it's so close. But what if I had a bill that looks like this about 99%, but just 1%, it's a tiny, tiny bit off. Then what is it worth? Nothing. Nothing. You can't really use it for much of anything else, you know, so it's worth essentially nothing because it's off. It is not genuine. If Satan wants to deceive people by a false Christianity, will he come at them with a $100 bill that's pink and purple and polka dot and looks obviously false? No. He will come at people with a religion that looks very similar. He's clever. Very similar to the original. So people will think, well, they go into church and they pray to God and they sing songs and they talk about God and they have the Bible they don't really understand it, but they talk about it. I remember in the Methodist church where I grew up for 19 years, and I was president of my Sunday school class once or twice. We kind of changed it around, so that was not some unusual honor, but I was once or twice. I don't know. And uh, But uh, we would we would have uh, the choir coming down the two sides of the loft. They'd be, holy, holy, holy. They'd be in, in black robes, and Lord God Almighty, blessed Trinity. And, uh, and the Holy Ghost, they'd sing, Best Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I used to wonder as a little kid, what is the Holy Ghost? 
And really, I wondered at times, I mean, when real little, six or nine years old, I thought of it as sort of a, a spooky character with long robes. That was the Holy Ghost. <laughs> but they don't understand it themselves much more than that. And they would have nice talks by the preacher about loving your neighbor or being good, being good, good, good Americans and, and, uh, and, and, and loving the Lord and, and stuff. But they never talked much about the commandments. And if they ever mentioned it, they never explained what the commandments would mean. And the preacher, when he would give these prayers in the service, he would, he would uh, be, a lot of times I'd look up as a wick, wicked, most teenagers are wicked, so I know who you are out there. But he, <laughs> he, he, I would watch him, and his eyes would be going back and forth reading this, the, the prayer. It was a very uh, uh, eloquent prayer, you know, big words that sound very important, but his eyes were reading it off the prayer that some ancient bishop in England back in 19, I mean, about 1850 may have written, who knows. Anyway, eloquent prayer, and then he'd say, well, now as our Lord has taught us, we pray, and everyone knew then to join in, you know, with the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. And we go blah, blah, blah. But back then, even in high school, I did not understand. And looking back, I had uh, Jimmy Mallet and Jimmy Porter and, and Jack Fernoy and, and uh, Ronnie Kendall and all my friends, Ducky McPherson, and they were there. They didn't understand because when they'd start getting drunk and trying to ask questions, trying to get awake, they'd ask me because I was hearing Mr. Armstrong and they thought I understood. What, what's it all about? And I knew more than they did and I knew practically nothing. But they didn't understand. Thy kingdom come. What do they mean by that? They didn't know what that meant. They weren't taught. They weren't taught that the kingdom of God is a kingdom pictured way back in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4 and Daniel 7 and over and over in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah all the way through and, you know, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all these whole parts of major prophecies talking about a coming kingdom, a coming government that's going to be set up on this earth, not up in heaven. And that government will be under the coming Messiah, under Jesus Christ. And that government will be like a rock and crush all the governments of the earth. And that government will last forever. That is the kingdom of God. But the Protestants think, well, kingdom of God, thy kingdom come, blah, blah, blah. And they pray this prayer, you know, the so-called reciting these things. And they don't understand it. It's just like, you know, Bugs Bunny rattling something off. They don't get it. Because God has not opened their minds. And not that they're stupid. He just has blinded them from understanding what that kingdom is all about. They don't understand the gospel. They talk about the precious gospel, the precious gospel. Well, what is the precious gospel they talk about? I remember there was this guy named Herb Tyler. I was seeking God up in the, up in the valley of the canyon up in Idaho, about 70 miles northeast of Boise, Idaho, uh, Anderson Ranch Dam was a big government-sponsored earth-filled dam built by the Bureau of Reclamation. And my second cousin got my couple of friends and me a job up there. And we were living in this kind of Quonset hut thing, and so we went to whatever there was to do at night. And one time the Youth for Christ guy came through. His name was Herb Tyler, so we went to hear Herb Tyler, and he was very uh, inspiring. And he talked about being on the bridge and, and, and over the Tiber in Rome. And some people came to him and he began to preach the gospel. And he says their eyes glistened and some were crying. And I told him about the precious gospel, he said. Oh, he got emotional. Okay, I came up later. I said, well, really, Mr. Tyler, I waited till others were gone. 
because I was already really studying the Bible, you know, a little bit and hearing Mr. Armstrong more and understanding that the Bible had meaning. And I said, well, what is the precious gospel? And he looked at me kind of funny. I mean, you mean that Christ died for our sins? He said, of course, Christ died for our sins. How wonderful is it to be forgiven? I said, well, that's fine. That's part of the gospel. But I said, I've been hearing Mr. Armstrong, Herbert Armstrong, and he talks about a coming government of God and the kingdom of God being set up and things that are happening and prophecy. And he looked at me kind of funny. He said, well, I've heard of him too, young man. He says, I think Mr. Armstrong is sincere. But he said, you can be completely sincere and completely false. Oh, okay. Or completely uh, wrong, I mean, completely wrong. So I thought, well, that's interesting. But it sounded like he was that way rather than Mr. Armstrong. And, of course, then I came at the end of the summer. I kept praying and asking God and came down on the bus from Idaho and uh, got to uh, Colorado and Fair Oaks. And then I had to walk all the way up about two miles up north to where my uncle was living and where I was going to stay with my Uncle Paul in a little trader house beside his house for a few weeks before the student dormitory opened up. But anyway, I always remember going down there and trying to figure out what's going on. But I was trying to prove things. And when I came to Ambassador College, I asked questions. I said, well, where does the money come from and who counts the money? And do you know Mr. Armstrong? And I asked all these questions about the sincerity and how nice things were. And, and later he laughed. This is your, He said, Rod, when you came to college, I heard you were asking all over this campus about me. But he said, I didn't worry or try to stop you. We had nothing to hide. <laughs> and that was true. We don't need to hide the truth. He had human nature like I do, but we had the truth. If you have the truth, that is a powerful thing. You can't argue with it. I don't care if they bring in the greatest scholars in the world. They can't properly argue with me about the truth because they don't know the truth. They just don't get it. God has not called them yet. If you're willing to admit there is a real God, and this book is the, is the inspired revelation from that God, how can you say that the Sabbath is not there? Where even the top Roman Catholic uh, cardinal in the entire United States at the time wrote in his book, Faith of Our Fathers, you can search the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find one line authorizing the observance of Sunday. Saturday is the day the Bible instructs, but we, he said, that is the Catholic Church, we have changed this. Some of you read that quotation in my booklet on the Sabbath day and other things we published. You can find that quotation. Look it up in the library and you'll see it there. Faith of Our Fathers by Francis Cardinal Gibbon, I think his name was Gibbon. Not the one who wrote the Roman Empire book, but another given. Anyway, so there is a tree of a mixture of good and evil. But when you understand it, Satan is the god of this age, and the evil always tends to predominate. If I serve you a wonderful, uh, 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 let's say, cup or, or a little bowl of vegetable soup, you say, well, that's wonderful. But what if I put in just a, a teaspoon of cyanide, just a tiny little bit compared to the big cup of soup, What's good about it? Well, you'll die right away. The bad mixture will kill you. And that's what you have to understand, brethren, and you brethren around the world. The world has bits and pieces of partial truth, but the world does not really have the whole truth at all. There was a very a gracious man, a very successful, impressive man, big in physical size, not fat, but just, you know, impressive, well-built and stature and well-dressed and well-mannered, he and his wife came out from Pennsylvania 
to the valleys uh, the, uh, of San Joaquin Valley up in uh, just a few miles north of where my wife is living out in uh, my present wife out in uh, California up near Merced. His name was Milton Ryman and he opened a great big turkey ranch. I think they call it a ranch. And he and his wife and others with him, of course, a whole bunch of people raised about three million birds a year. And he owned that ranch. He also owned a feed uh, mill where they would grind the feed for his ranch and sell it to others too. And then he also had a big restaurant over on old Highway 99 before the new Highway 5 came through. And then they had a fourth corporation, he told me, that was a holding company just for tax purposes because he was a millionaire back when a millionaire dollars was worth something. <laughs> and uh, so he was quite well off, had a great big home and swimming pool that... He let the whole church used and let me and my family or me and my boys sometimes alone would stay at going up back and forth to Yosemite. He was just a few miles from Yosemite National Park. Very nice man, cultured, successful. In fact, the Republican Party had put him up at one point, nominated him as one of the candidates for lieutenant governor of the state of California before he was converted. Dick Armstrong, when I had this campaign uh, in Fresno in the summer of 1956, and he came almost every single night. His son-in-law was a big young man, about six foot four, and Mr. Ryman was probably about 60 then. But his son-in-law was younger and drove him down in his big long Cadillac, and they came there every night virtually. I think they just missed two or three nights out of, we had, it was five weeks, six nights a week. So we had 30, 30 evening services in a row. So I preached night after night. But anyway... He got to know us, and we got to know him. But he was telling me this story later. His wife wasn't converted. She was, as I had been, I think, a Methodist. And she wasn't converted until after his death. And I know she's dead by now, so don't reflect on her or him. I liked him. Very nice man. But he was, you know, he was a businessman. He didn't mess around, and he, he called a spade a spade. And he would tell her, Edna, or whatever her name was, he told me, he said, I said, Edna, he says, you Protestants have every single solitary thing wrong. I'd never heard it put just that strongly. And, of course, that bothered his wife. I said, well, how do you explain that? He said, to your wife. Uh, and, and then he spelled it out for me. Well, they believe in God, but they believe the wrong God. They don't really know the God of the Bible, and that's true. They have a Christ, but they have the wrong Christ. They don't understand the Christ of the Bible, and that's true. They talk about the Holy Spirit, but they don't understand what it is. Their whole concept is wrong. And they talk about heaven, hell, immortality of the soul. All that's wrong. Christmas and Easter is wrong. Their day of rest is Sunday. That's wrong. And virtually every, you go through down the line. He went about 15 or 25 different things. Their whole concept of being born again is wrong. Their whole concept, you just mention everything. If you look in the ultimate meaning of it, if you get technical, every single solitary thing they had is wrong. Some of it was partial truth because the Protestants and Catholics use the name God, but they don't understand who God is. And I'll explain more of that to you if some of you don't understand and some of you new brethren in Christ, but they have the wrong Christ. They don't understand and so on. So they had the wrong concept of who they were of the purpose of life, who the true God is, who the true Savior is, where, where you're going when you die or how to get there. You know, every single solitary thing was wrong. Nothing was right. 
It kind of impressed me that this successful millionaire told me that I was already a young minister, but just the way he put it, I thought, he, he doesn't mess around. <laughs> and, and that was true. When you really understand it technically, they were totally wrong in every way. They had partial Christianity, so you could say, well, these people are nice people, so they must be Christian too, my friends over here in this church or that church. But brethren, you're either Christian or you're not Christian. Now, we have some beautiful young women here in the church. My, he, oh, he's, he's, fig, he's, he's seeing if it's there. <laughs> and we have some beautiful young women here in the church. There are two or three right now that are pregnant. And, uh, you know, as they understand and their husbands understand, you're not partially pregnant, all right? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're not partially pregnant. You're either Christian or you're not Christian. Please understand that, brethren. You're either Christian or you're not. You might have some semi-Christian ideas, but that does not make you Christian. So you need to use that analogy in your own thinking. You're either pregnant or not. You're either Christian or not. Who is a Christian? Well, I don't have a whole sermon on that, but you've heard us just review a couple of basic, very basic things. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. What could be more Christian than Christ's direct teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? 5, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill, which means fill to the full, which he did in his life. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, one tiny dotting of an I or crossing of a T, so to speak, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Get this, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least... Whichever one you want to call least, the Sabbath or lying or anything, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, plural, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't say he'll get there, but he'll call, be called least by those who are there when you understand it. But whoever does and teaches them, we have to do them and teach them, and all of you should have part in teaching them. Pray for the work. Give to the work. Get involved in what Christ is doing in the work of God today. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not kingdom in heaven, but kingdom of heaven. That's another thing the Protestants twist around. They say, oh, the Bible talks about heaven. Yeah, it's the kingdom of heaven. It's never called the kingdom in heaven. Heaven is God's throne, and the kingdom is going to come from heaven back to this earth. Heaven denotes of, I mean, denotes ownership. The bank of Morgan is one of the major banks in New York. It's not in a city called Morgan. It's because uh, J.P. Morgan was the founder. It's of Morgan. He was the owner and the founder of the bank. Did Mr. Morgan swallow his piggy bank? Is it in Morgan? Did he swallow it? No. It's the bank of Morgan, not in Morgan. So it's the kingdom of heaven. So then he goes ahead and explains some of these commandments. You've heard you shall not murder, and he showed you're not only not to kill, you're not even to hate. He said you've heard that you shall not commit adultery, but verse 28, I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you're, he shows what commandments he was talking about. He was talking about the Ten Commandments, those commandments, as he always did. That's what a Christian is. Matthew nineteen seventeen. Remember, Matthew 19, verse 17, the young man asked, What can I do to inherit eternal life? Do you want to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? He said, If you want to enter life, keep 
the commandments, plural, and he began to name some of the commandments. And then back here in Matthew chapter 7, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in verse 21, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in your name? We've been out preaching about Jesus, talking about Jesus, how good it is to know the Lord this morning. Have we not cast out demons? And they talk in the Protestant world, as you know, the demons of ignorance and the demons of despair, and, and they don't understand real demons, most of them anyway, and, and done many wonders in your name. They built hospitals and homes for unwed mothers and things all over, so they think those are the wonders, I guess. He says, then I will declare to them, what does Jesus say to these sincere? Many of them are sincere people. They've done good works. They've put all these hospitals and home for unwed mothers and shelters for the drunks and bums and so on. Then I will declare to them, what? You've been good Christians? No, I never, never knew you. Not at any time did I regard you as my follower. Not at any time did I regard you as a Christian I never knew you. Depart from ye, here's the key, you who practice lawlessness. See, these are people who preached in Christ's name, who did good works as they looked at it, but they didn't preach the true Christ. They did not preach His message. They did not have the true gospel. And they had works that were not the kind of works done powerfully, directly by God and His power through His Spirit. He said, I never knew you. So he does not even know these people. They are not Christian or he would know them. So I hope that's pretty clear. Now let's turn back to 1 John. Here is the beloved apostle, as we know, the one that was closest to Jesus, who was in his bosom there at the Last Supper, as it's called, and was Jesus' special friend. Here's what John wrote back in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. John wrote, He who says, I know him, that is, you're a Christian, I know God, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you say you even know Christ, you then would be a Christian, perhaps, if you know Christ. But he who says, I know him, and does not keep, it's not that you know about, but does not keep his commandments, plural, is a liar. Such a person would be a liar if he says he knows Christ. He does not know Christ. He might know about Christ, but he's not really acquainted with Christ. You see, as I said, the Pope knows about Christ, and the Pope knows about the devil. And James tells us, you know, you say there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They know there's a God. They know there was a Christ. They know that Christ rose from the dead. Do you think devils would argue with you about that? No, they saw it. They were there. Are they converted? No. They knew he rose from the dead. Many of them may have been there and seen it, but they will not obey God. They will not let God run their lives. That's the whole key, brethren, that God wants Christ to live his life in you and me, and he wants us to then be fit to live forever because we will be willing to follow his government to do what he says and be fit for eternal life. Otherwise, these people, won't, they know about God, but they don't really know God. And let's turn back to 1 John 5, 3. 
people say, oh, well, the main thing is love. The main thing is love. Let's just have the love of God. Okay, let's have that. First John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. God inspired this in His book right near the end of the New Testament, one of the last books ever written. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, not Jesus' new commandments, but His, God the Father's commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Oh, it's so hard to keep the Sabbath. Well, the world has put up some roadblocks to make it more difficult. But as I said, when I was in Ambassador College and in tomorrow's world and in a good society, that will be the easiest commandment to keep. If everyone else is keeping it, all you need to do is rest and go to church and so on one day a week and the rest of the week. But you can't kill, you can't steal, you can't lust, you can't hate, you can't all day long. But one day a week you have to rest and worship. That's rough, (laughs) you see. In one sense, the Sabbath is the easiest commandment to keep. But people try to make it hard. And it's not hard. All right. Anyway, so the Protestants have a false paradigm of the whole concept of Christianity. That's what I've entitled my sermon, The False Paradigm of Protestantism. The False Paradigm of Protestantism. Paradigm is a word that means a model. It's a whole concept of the way things ought to work. It's sometimes used in science where the scientists have a whole... Uh, model or structure the way things in the natural universe work and they can reason from that. And that's the way it is in theology too. But their paradigm is a whole wrong paradigm because they have a God that's sort of way off. He isn't necessarily the creator. They don't know the creator God. He's just a concept or a force out there somewhere. They have a Jesus Christ that... Uh, came a young man a young Jew and died and they're supposed to get very sentimental about that listen carefully I'm giving you their paradigm and then in their minds they don't think about it directly but the way it comes out brethren get this most Protestants most Protestant ministers have the concept in their head that Christianity and most all the concepts of Christianity began at the time of Christ and then the apostles, and then apparently the apostle Paul uh, polished it and made it much better, the paradigm, because then he did away with God's law, supposedly, and made it a lot better, all this kind of thing. Is that true? No, that's the wrong paradigm. When you understand it, and we've had whole sermons and booklets on this, and I may write a whole article about this, but the true paradigm is that, as it says in, in Isaiah forty-two twenty-one. Isaiah 42:21 and many other scriptures indicate this that Christ came to magnify the law. He did not come to do away as he said, he did not come to do away with God's law. He came to magnify it. He he did not come to invent a brand new religion. He didn't grab some new religion out of the sky and give a whole bunch of stuff that was new. You've never understood anything and now I'm going to give you the whole way of life. No. He came and he kept the same Sabbath that the Jews had always kept. He kept the same holy days, the same uh, knowledge of clean and unclean meats, and the same basic way of life, except you weren't not just to kill, but you couldn't even hate. You were not just to refrain from adultery, but you were not to even lust. And he magnified the law, and he built on the concept that uh, Daniel had given and Isaiah had given about a government, showed more about that government, that coming kingdom, and how there is a spiritual dimension to that, 
and you have to be converted. You have to have God's Holy Spirit. You have to have Christ living in you. And the whole paradigm is that Christ, that God has been preparing a kingdom, a government to be set up on this earth. The kingdom of God, remember back in Daniel 2, that stone, the fifth kingdom is that stone which will smite all these other idols or images and pieces and that will, it will last forever. The kingdom of God is to be set up. The government of God. So the, the paradigm, the true paradigm is that Christ has been preparing a government to be set up on this earth to bring real peace and joy and prosperity and everything right. But people have to be converted to be leaders in that coming kingdom and have to be part, ultimately part of that kingdom. And when you then understand all the spiritual ramifications, then that kingdom is not just a government. That is, as all great kingdoms of the past, it's a family grown great. Ancient Israel started with Abraham and then Isaac and then Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. And that was Israel grown great. His 12 sons became millions and hundreds of millions of people, and all of us are eventually grafted into what? Into some Gentile thing? No, we're grafted into spiritual Israel, as the Bible says a number of times. We all become spiritually Israelites. And so it's a family grown great, and then the Bible makes it very clear, of course, that finally that family will be literally born of the Spirit, born of God. And the paradigm of the world does away with all of that. The concept that God's kingdom is a family grown great and that that family will ultimately be a whole group of, of beings made in God's image who become full members of the very family of God and live forever and ever in the family of God ruling this earth in joy and working together. That is the true paradigm, brethren, and the Protestant false paradigm is uh, just absolutely wrong. And you have to understand this world has this whole wrong paradigm and they just don't get it. They just don't get it at all. So we want to understand the true paradigm. Notice now back in First uh, John, if you would, uh, uh, now again, First John, uh, let's go to chapter 2 and verse 24 this time. John writes, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What do you mean the beginning? We're going right back to Jesus Christ, the beginning of, 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 of the, the Christianity he started. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. You won't just know about them. You will abide in them. And, of course, as I've said, they will live their lives in you through the Holy Spirit. Then he said in verse 28, and now, little children, abide in Him, abide in Christ, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is begotten of Him. And the Greek word there should be translated begotten, as I've explained. Every one of these words comes from the Greek ganao, and even the top scholars acknowledge it can go either born or begotten based on the context. So everyone who practices what? Righteousness. Righteousness, all thy commandments are righteousness. Psalm 119, verse 172. If you practice that, then you have God in you, obviously, and you're a Christian. Then he says over here in 1 John 3, let's begin in 1 John 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him, abides in Christ, does not sin. 
And all the way through here, brethren, some of the modern translations and commentaries acknowledge it's the present progressive. It means does not practice sin. It doesn't mean you never sin at all. Whoever sins, you know, sins continually as a way of life, has neither seen him nor known him. But do people in the world sin? Well, of course, they always do. They don't, they're not called yet. They break every Sabbath. They break every holy day. Many of them constantly lie a little bit here and there. They don't think it's too bad. And I understand that. I used to be a normal person, a carnal person, I should say. They don't think it's too bad. And the teenage boys have pornography, and they think that's not too bad, you know, to lust a little here and lie a little there and fight and cuss a little there. They don't get it. God has not called them. Uh, He says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Your righteousness must be Christ's righteousness to be a Christian, in other words. He who sins, that is regularly practices sin, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Notice verse 9 carefully. Whoever has been born, this should be begotten, Whoever has been begotten of God, God's Holy Spirit comes into you and changes you and gives you strength you did not have before after you really repented or baptized. Whoever has been begotten of God does not practice sin. Some translations even show it's in the progressive, it's in the uh, uh, continual action here translation. Who has, does not practice sin for his seed And the literal Greek word here, as some of you know, is sperm. It's not evil. God made sperm, and he made the female ovum to make a child. So he says, whoever, uh, anyway, for his seed, God's very sperm, God's divine seed, his Holy Spirit remains in him. The very nature of God is put right in us. That's what changes us. That very nature is placed in us. His seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been begotten of God. He cannot practice sin. We used to think that meant that you're already born of God, but notice the context. And this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Well, that shows us going on now. How can you tell who's converted and who's not? The ones who've been really converted have God's nature in them. They do not practice sin. They may make mistakes and repent, But they make fewer mistakes as they go along. Every year, there's a certain degree of growth. They grow in grace and in knowledge. They do not practice sin as a way of life. So in this, the children of God and the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice, and here it is even translated that way. Look in your New King James. They put it there this time. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, he's not a Christian nor is he who does not love his brother. So he's talking about this life and who is converted and who is not converted and the ones who know God and the ones who are converted and have God's seed in him are those who practice righteousness. They practice God's commandments. But if you practice disobedience, if your way of life is regularly killing or lusting or committing adultery or lying, or breaking the Sabbath, then you do not have God's seed in you. You are not converted. You are not a Christian. So when you really understand, that's what God is talking about, and you have to come to understand that. 
Do the, does the world ever have its prayers answered? Some people say, well, God answers the prayers of some of these people. Well, of course God does on occasion because he has a merciful attitude, but that doesn't mean they're converted. Back in uh, Psalm 107, just give you one example. I wish we had another hour here, but I'll cut this short. Psalm 107 is one example of many. Psalm 107, verse 23 those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on the great water, they see the works of the Lord. They're down there and the waves come up and a great storm comes and they're scared to death. Verse 27, they reel to and fro. They stagger like a drunken man. They're at their wit's end. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. They're very sincere. God has not called them yet, but in His mercy, since they do turn to Him, he occasionally hears prayers. He doesn't always. He's not bound to. But often he does do that because in his mercy he knows he's not called them. It's not their fault. But if they sincerely cry out, he sometimes heals people that are not converted yet. He sometimes delivers them from trouble. Doesn't always do that, but sometimes he has. And doesn't say converted people. He just talk about sailors who go down to the sea in ships and they cry out. And, and then he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that his waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. Yes, God is very merciful even to unconverted people who turn to him with all their heart and all their soul, even though he's not called them yet. That does not mean they're converted. That does not mean that at all. They have not yet been conquered by God. They are not surrendered to let Christ live His life in them and to really do what God says. So, brethren, again, turn, Tom, to what to saw, uh, uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 18. And in Revelation chapter 18, why, as you know, it describes this Babylon, the great, is fallen. It's a prison for every foul spirit. All nations have drunk of it. Every nation has been affected by this, this false idea of Christianity, a whole false concept. They don't know where they're going. They think they're going to heaven with nothing to do, and that does away with the whole idea of overcoming, of growing in grace and in knowledge, of preparing to be a king or a priest in the kingdom of God if you think you're just going to float off to heaven. They don't understand that. They have a false gospel. They think they just give their heart to the Lord and float off to heaven. God says, no, Christ is the one who is magnifying God's law. He carried on. He built on the religion that God gave through Moses. The Jews had perverted it, but Christ magnified that and made it holy because Christ is the one that gave it in the first place. As you know, Christ was the God of the Old Testament. Christ is the one who gave the Sabbath. Christ is the one who gave the holy days. Christ is the one who gave unclean meats. And he simply came along and magnified that whole way of life, and that became Christianity. And he added to it the personal conversion process, which was not yet part of the Old Testament religion until he came. But he didn't change everything. He didn't come out of the sky with something brand new. That isn't when the whole way of life began. It began way back at the time of Abraham and was codified at the time of Moses. So he says in verse 4, talking about this foul fallen woman, a, a habitation of demons, he said, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. So I would say again to you, each of you, brethren, understand that 
And again, try to go back always, if you would, not that it's perfect, but it's the best single verse in the Bible to what I've told you that Paul wrote. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. It's not the old self living, but Christ lives in me. That is the key. Christ will live his life in you through the Holy Spirit. And that is true Christianity. And that is not the religion of Moses necessarily. It's magnified. It's certainly not the religion of the Jews, though, who perverted the religion of Moses. It's certainly not the religion of the Catholics. It's not the religion of the Protestants because they don't really know God. They don't know Christ. They don't know the truth. They have the words, but they don't know what those words mean. They have a false paradigm, a false model about the whole concept of what Christianity is all about. Understand, come out of her, my people, and let Christ live his life in you through the Holy Spirit.